0: Woodford's new fund, an end to the Alliance Trust saga and the best income opportunities in the UK market from a fund manager who knows. I'm Kate Beerley, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and this is the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Show. Where can you find the best income in the UK market today? One person who knows is Laura Foll, Manager of Lowland Investment Company, who joins us in the studio today. Um, so Laura, first off, tell us a bit about the trust.
1: So, it's a multi cap trust, so it has everything from small companies, medium sized companies, all the way up to mega cap companies, the likes of GlaxoSmithKline and HSBC. So, it's very varied. Um, it aims to both grow your capital and grow your income over time. So, it's not about chasing a high dividend yield. You know, we're not trying to be a higher yield than the market. The market's about a 4% yield, Lowland's more like 3.2%. But the idea is that the income grows quicker than the broader market. So we grew our dividend around 10% last year, so above the broader market. And it aims to pick companies that have the potential to really grow sales and earnings over time. You know What we're really trying to avoid is those value-trap stocks where we think those industries have structural problems over the long term. Okay
0: now this is a volatile performer isn't it and last year you underperformed the benchmark so a return of 2.5% against FTSE all shares over 16% so what was the reasoning there?
1: So it was a two and a half percent underperformance but the NAV was up around 14% so it was a good year for absolute returns but yes it did underperform the broader FTSE all share benchmark and it was really because of those smaller and medium-sized companies, what happened after Brexit was that domestic companies in the UK really got de-rated relative to more international ones, you know, the likes of Unilever, Reckitt Bankiza, that kind of thing. So, because of the approximately two-thirds of Lowland that is in that smaller and medium-sized company area, the, the fund did struggle relative to the broader benchmark. There was also a few sector one-offs last year. It was very hard. If you didn't have an overweight position in oil and gas and materials, you really struggled relative to the broader benchmark because those two sectors did so phenomenally well in 2016. So there was a sector element, but also a small and medium sized company element. OK, so
0: it was kind of this sterling depreciation between large caps and then that rally. Um, were there any parts of the portfolio which, which were responsible as well or, or was it really a broader issue?
1: It was more of a broader issue. There there will always be one-off stock specifics as well. So um, just to give you an example of that, you know, we have international personal finance, which does door-to-door lending in countries like Poland. Um, Right before Christmas, the Polish regulator decided to put an unexpected um, interest rate cap on that company. Um, So there are one-off stock hits like that. But for the most part, it was a broader market phenomenon. Okay. And so
0: we've been talking about this like weighting um, or overweight to smaller companies and comparable trusts. What proportion of assets are in small and mid-caps relative to large and and mega-caps.
1: So it's approximately a third, a third, a third is is how we should think about it. What we say is we explicitly won't hold more than 50% in the FTSE 100. So it will always have a small and medium-sized company bias. Um, But it's not any sort of asset allocation type decision. It really is a very bottom-up, fundamental-driven investment process. So it's where we're seeing value in the market. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding at the moment is that we're finding value at that real small cap end where there's not many analysts covering it. There is a valuation discount for those smaller companies at the moment um but yes it's it's not any sort of macro driven asset allocation you know we want to be in small cap we want to be in large cap it's very bottom up okay and uh, we'll
0: come into maybe some some examples of that um but small caps have undeniably been quite strong performance in recent years haven't they certainly relative to large cap um and between 2011 to 2015 i think particularly small caps outperformed large
1: did that boost your own performance Yes, definitely. I mean, what we've done is we've gone through the performance historically to see, you know, is the outperformance over this is over the long term for Lowland simply because we've been in small and medium-sized companies? Is it simply asset allocation or are we actually um, good at stock picking? You know, just to be completely blunt. And um, we've gone back over time and it's both. And actually the stock specifics did drive a lot of that outperformance, but it was also the asset allocation. Um, and if I'm thinking sort of into the future, you know, small companies do find it easier to grow simply because they are smaller. You know, it's much easier to grow a 50 million or a 500 million company to a 5 billion one than it is for Glaxo to grow from where it is now. So there will always be aspects that make it easier for smaller companies to deliver that earnings growth and that dividend growth than it is for the larger ones.
0: Um, but at the same time people are kind of starting to say that maybe the, the small cap run or this relative outperformance is maybe coming to an end. Will, will that be an issue for you if small caps do underperform relative to large caps?
1: But they did last year so the, the run kind of ended in the end of 2015 and 2016 was quite a tough year for the small cap manager or the multi-cap manager. Um, so the question I suppose is, is has it gone far enough and can they return to outperforming that smaller cap end. And in recent months, they have. So what's been quite interesting in, you know, we're talking really short time now, in the last few months, the smaller cap end has begun to outperform again. So you're seeing a broadening out in the market you know, people are perhaps thinking, has Unilever run far enough? And perhaps we should expand where we're looking at to that smaller cap end of the market. So the signs are good that people are beginning to return to looking at those often domestically focused smaller companies.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned that particularly after the Brexit vote, smaller companies were kind of hit, um, I guess, by negative sentiment towards anything domestically facing. Um, How much of that do you think was a sentiment shift that went too far? And to what extent are you concerned by some of your companies that, you know, things like higher import
1: charges or higher tariffs could affect them? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult to say at this point what will happen when we actually do leave. I think shortly after Brexit, for Lowland specifically, we did take the gearing down. So we were at a high teens percent of gearing. We took it right back to about 6% just after Brexit. And in particular, that was companies where we were concerned about whether they would be able to pass on the higher import costs. Um, So we had a small position, for example, in Tesco. Um, You know, we import a lot of our food here in the UK. It's a very competitive market, the food retail market as a whole. I just had questions about whether in that type of environment can they really pass on all of that import cost inflation to the end consumer? You know, will wages for the end consumer go up enough to justify that and to allow them to do that? Um, We had questions there. And we also sold, you know, to be clear, we didn't just sell companies that were domestic. We also sold things like the miners, where we thought that they'd actually run up ahead of fundamentals anyway. So it wasn't that we took all of that gearing out just from domestic companies. It was actually a bit broader than that. Um, But in areas we were particularly concerned, we did sell. And you sold Glencore and Anglo-American, didn't you? Yes, exactly. So those aren't held at all. Um, We bought those quite well towards the end of 2015, uh, when people were really concerned about the area. So it looks like good um, purchases, but unfortunately we sold them too early. So we sold them in mid last year when they'd roughly doubled, but um, they've since doubled again. So, Okay, yeah, so we sold them a bit too soon, you yeah. think. Okay. Sticking with Brexit
0: and some of these smaller companies, are there any of these smaller companies where, in fact, they are selling majority overseas and, you know, the market has a wrong perception of them in that sense, that they're international companies but just happen to be smaller in size?
1: Yeah, I think... People often, you're right, they have a misperception of smaller companies that they tend to be 100% domestic. And actually, even when you go right down the market cap scale, some of these companies are incredibly international in their end exposure. Um, And a good example of that would be one of our AIM holdings called Sumero. It does concrete levelling equipment. It's actually almost 100% a US company. It just happens to be listed here on AIM. Um, But I think the market has, on the whole, been quite rational in terms of how it's looking at these companies. I think even at the smaller cap end People really are looking at where the end market exposure is. So Samara didn't actually get hit on Brexit. And we were surprised at just how rational the market was when it came to re-rating the FTSE, given the fall in sterling. Yeah, so so uh, I would question whether people were irrational in what they were selling off. What sold off did tend to be the extremely domestic companies. Okay. Um so
0: let's let's talk about dividends and income now. Where do you think the highest income will will be coming from ac- across the Foot Seal Share um this year kind of next 5 years and uh and where do you think dividends are looking a bit stretched?
1: Okay, well this year should actually be quite a good year for the FTSE 100 income in particular, given that around 40% is paid in US dollars. So there's a mechanical increase coming through this year in UK dividends just from the fall in sterling. So if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have been quite concerned about FTSE 100 dividends. Quite a few of them were looking stretched. Glaxo, as an example, was paying out over 100% of its earnings at that point. But given where sterling is now, it's looking a lot more comfortable. So I'm less worried about the broader FTSE 100 dividend environment than I would have been a year ago. And um, we're also seeing quite a few special dividends coming through. So ones we've got at the smaller cap end, like Shoe Zone has announced a special dividend, that gives you a roughly 10% yield if you put the ordinary and the special in together. So we are, we are quite encouraged on the dividend outlook on the whole. And what I often say is that people who don't quite appreciate how good income is in that smaller cap end of the market People often think of small cap stocks as very much growth stocks. But actually, there's some really good dividend payers that tend to go a bit unnoticed in that small end of the market. What,
0: what would be an example of one of those?
1: So shoes would be quite a good one. Um, another one would be something like Moss Bros, um, you know, the suits retailer. That pays about a 6% yield. It's got a net cash balance sheet. Um, and it just, that, that kind of end, it's not very well covered. It's not that well appreciated. There are, of course, risks, you know, Bros would be exposed, for example, to the fall in sterling. They import a lot of their costs in US dollars. Um, so it's always worth being aware of the risk. But you know, there is good yield to be had at that small cap end. Okay. And
0: how well spread um, is the income you receive um, from your stocks? How well
1: diversified is, is that income across your holdings? We try and make sure it's as diversified as possible. So it's a long list of holdings. We've got around 120 in lowland. Um, so it would certainly be less concentrated than the broader market. Um, In particular, ones like Shell, you know, Shell's 10% of the broader UK index now, it'd be significantly more of that in terms of the income proportion coming from Shell. Um, Whereas with Lowland, we do have a decent sized position in Shell, it's roughly 5%, but it would be less than the broader market. So we'd certainly be more diversified than the index. And what we try and do is make sure that we're not overly dependent on any one company or any one sector. So we'd have Shell in our top 10, but we'd also have you know more diversified ones like HSBC would be a positioned in our top 10 and smaller companies like Hill & Smith that follow a completely different end market to the likes of Shell and HSBC. Are there any sectors where,
0: or, or companies where you think the dividend will be pretty high this year uh, but you're choosing to not invest because either you think that dividend is unsustainable or or you just don't like the company?
1: Yes, yeah, so we hold absolutely nothing in Lloyds, which will be quite a big income payer in the UK. This year, we haven't held it, you know, since I've worked on the trust, at least since the last five years or so. Um, It's not that we think the dividend is unsustainable. It's that I question where the earnings growth is coming from in Lloyds. Uh, They're very dependent on the UK mortgage market for their earnings. They're having to seed market share really quite aggressively because they've got this big cost base in the UK. You know, they've got so many branches compared to the challenger banks. that it is very hard for Lloyds to be cost competitive with things like their mortgage offers. They are deliberately seeding market share. And what we're trying to do in Lowland is pick companies that have the capacity to grow earnings over the long term. I just I can't quite see where that's coming from in Lloyds. OK. And just talking of
0: things that you can grow over the long term, I guess, you have been adding slightly to early stage companies, have you, in the portfolio? Yes. Um, firstly, what's the rationale there? And, and secondly, is that a risk to the fund's income in that a lot of these, you know, may not pay out income yet or, or for a few years?
1: It's a good point. None of them pay income currently. So it's quite a small portion of the trust. It's around 4% of so the overall trust. And it has been that for quite a few years. So we've not been adding aggressively to the area. But the idea is that these companies will generate good capital growth over the long term. You know, Part of what we try and do in Lowland is pick areas that the UK is really good at. So we're very good at engineering. So we have a, a lot in industrials and that's our biggest sector, overweight. We're also very good at science. And it's been quite hard to invest in that area historically. You know, we have two big large cap pharma companies but then we don't have much in the medium-sized company area for pharmaceuticals they've mostly been acquired over time so if you want to invest in science you've really got to go quite small cap Um, but what we're trying to get exposure to in particular is the science coming out of our UK universities.
0: So what kind of company would you be investing in uh
1: So one of, well, our longest individual holding would be a company called IP Group, which has relationships with UK and also some US universities, um, you know, Manchester, Bath, Bristol, well-known UK universities, and is trying to take the technology and the science there and make full-scale commercial companies, um, because what we've been very bad at is commercialising the good science. You know, we, we have a bit of a history of selling too early to the Americans in the UK. And companies like IP Group are trying to, to rectify that and incubate companies for a much longer period of time to just give them a bit longer period of stability before going on to list, um, often on AIM. So we really like IP Group. Their biggest individual portfolio investment is a company called Oxford Nanopore, which does DNA sequencing, but much more sort of USB stick type size. And it only costs you $1,000. You can literally go on Oxford Nanopore's website and buy one. So it's a fully commercial technology. But it's up against Illumina, which is a huge US company, you know, 25 billion type market cap. It's a very big end market. Um, and what matters for IP Group and Oxford Nanopore is whether they can fully commercialise it to the degree that they can take on a company like Illumina. And is that the risk with, with a holding like that? Yes. You've always got to be aware with this 4% in this very early stage area that it will be binary. You know, these technologies either will or won't work will or won't be commercialised, um, which is risky, but is nice in a way in that it doesn't follow the broader market. You know, IP group, it really doesn't matter whether UK inflation is 4 or 5% this year. What matters is what happens to Nanoport and whether that technology does take off. Okay,
0: and... Um- you have said that you the yield is a little lower than maybe comparable trusts, but it's a well-covered dividend, isn't it? And is that kind of a deliberate decision to to
1: be a little more conservative in order to keep growing? Yes, we do try and be very conservative. So, for example, we take all of the expenses through the income line on lowland, which is relatively unusual these days. So it's a 3.2% yield, but it does have a history of growing above the market. So if you look at the compound growth rate, it would be roughly 10% a year that that dividend has grown at historically So the growth is good. We also do have a revenue reserve that's around 13 million, but that doesn't have the final dividend taken out. So it's approximately 70% of a year's payout. That we have in the revenue reserve. So, it, you know, it's a conservative board and we do try and make sure that the dividend can be consistently grown rather than growing it you know, too much in any one year and then having to retract. We've never had to cut the dividend. We, t- we have held it a few times, but never cut it.
0: Okay. Talking of dividend cuts, um, where do you stand today on the miners? You We've just said that you kind of missed out a bit on Glencore and Anglo by selling too soon. Would you buy them today or is it a sector that you are avoiding?
1: It's something we continue to look at because that would be the most painful thing to do. The, you know, as a farm manager, you've always got to question your own assumptions and it would be incredibly painful to buy back, Anglo's back in where it is today at £13, having sold it at around 7 So it's something that we continually look at and I think the answer to whether we'd buy them back is no. I think analysts have gotten a bit ahead of themselves in putting in spot prices. Um, most analysts now have these companies as a buy. If you'd looked at them a year ago, almost every analyst would have had them as a sell. And indeed, you know, when we put the trades on to try and buy them, we were told that, the, don't you know, these companies are going bust. You know, the, the expectations have completely flipped the other way. And as someone running, you know, a mildly contrarian value-driven fund, it would be quite uncomfortable to, to buy them back in now. We do still hold RIOs and BHPs, so it's not that we've got nothing in the sector. Um, but yes, Glengo Glencore and Anglos have both been sold.
0: And so what, what are the Glencores and Anglos of today then? What, what's the sector or the companies that everyone is hating that you're taking a contrarian view on? I mean, the most
1: contrarian at the moment feels like domestic UK. A lot of those smaller companies and medium-sized companies that sold off following Brexit haven't really re-rated yet. And there are some areas of the market that people just don't want to look at. Um, and an example of that would be something like the car retailers. You know, we've just taken a, a very small position, a starter position in Marshall Motors, which is one of the you know, the smaller UK car retailers in the UK. And it's completely unloved. You know, it's on around six times earnings approximately. Um, it's got property freeholds, but people just don't want to know. Um, they, they want to see evidence of the slowdown, which hasn't really come through yet before, you know, dipping their toe into those domestically exposed retailers Mm, and i mean because i I guess
0: the risk there is on a very basic level that people just won't be going out and spending money on things like cars
1: yeah exactly so it's got the double whammy of uk car sales have been very good for a long period of time we're back at roughly peak uk car sales and everyone's got these um financing deals now where they don't pay for the car up front and therefore if interest rates go up you know those financing deals for cars will become more expensive so it's got a sort of Vaguely structural headwind of will people continue to use these financing deals plus UK domestic exposure. Um, so you can see why people are just uh, writing off the sector, if you like, but that feels like the very contrarian area at the moment. Okay, and and you're also quite keen on recovery situations, aren't yeah.
0: you? So Standard Chartered and Rolls-Royce, both controversial stocks um, in yeah. your portfolio.
1: What are the risks with those two and, and what makes you think that they're solid plays? So the risks with Standard Chartered will always be that you get one-off hits to one of their geographies. Um, so taking India, for example, you know, the demonetisation that's happened there could mean that they get some non-performing loans in that area. And I think with standards, you almost have to to know that those are coming and to look through them. Uh, you know, it's still at around 0.7 of book where it is now. So it's still trading below its book value. So roughly, people are assuming that this, this bank will never earn above its cost of capital. And as long as you think the CEO, Bill Winters, is capable of doing that, you have to kind of close your eyes and keep holding it. You can't sell it when there are inevitably these one-off hits. Um, so, so we hold it because we think he is doing a good job, Bill Winters. He's refocusing the business on what it is they're genuinely good at. Um, he seems to have fixed the balance sheet. He cut the dividend. He raised capital. That was the point at which we took the investment because we felt more comfortable with the capital ratio. Um, and, and importantly, you know, relative to something like Lloyd's, we think it does have scope to grow. It is in... Um, emerging economies that are underpenetrated in terms of their banking system, so you can see logically where the earnings growth is coming from there, relative to Alloyd's, for example. In Rolls, is quite similar. You know, we, we really like Warren East. We think he's doing a good job in terms of taking out management hierarchy that was somewhat unnecessary. He's fixed the accounting in a way in that it was incredibly opaque a few years ago. It was very difficult to analyse. He has changed that, taking a lot of costs out. And, and ultimately, Rolls did continue to win good orders. So even though it's had real problems with its margins and cash flow generation, it has at least got a strong order book. You know, the technology is there. So if you can fix the cost base, you know, we're hopeful that they can return to solid earnings and, and ultimately dividend growth. Okay, great. we almost out of
0: time. Just finally, the year ahead, we've got kind of higher inflation. We've got potential rate rises on the cards. Very simply, what kind of company performs well? What kind of UK company performs well in a rising rate and rising inflation environment?
1: It's incredibly important to have a company that actually is doing something very unique. If you're in a high inflation environment, you need to have something that consumers are willing to pay for. It has to be something very different. So, what you absolutely cannot be is, you know, if, Just as an example, a general retailer where there's a lot of competition online, you've got a big store base, you can't compete. That is the absolute worst case scenario. What you need to be is something completely unique, ideally something that can sell globally as well, so that if sterling does fall, you've got a real competitive advantage that's coming from that. Thanks very much, Laura. Now, this week, renowned fund
0: manager Neil Woodford said he was going to launch a new fund. So, Leonora, tell us more about this.
2: Okay, Neil's new fund is going to be income focused, but it's going to pay or aim to pay out a higher income than his existing CF Woodford Equity Income Fund. Now, CF Woodford Equity Income. is probably more of a, you know, a total return focused fund. It does pay out an attractive income, probably around four p a year so far, which currently translates into a yield of about three point four percent. But the new fund, um, and we don't have a name of this yet, that's going to target an income of about five p a share in twenty eighteen, and then going forward, its aim will be sustainable growth over a five year holding period, and looking to deliver at least 20% more than the income delivered by the FTSE All Share Index over a five-year rolling period. Okay, so um, what are the differences between what this fund can
0: do and and what his other funds can do in terms of where they invest and that kind of thing?
2: Okay, um, there are a few specifics here that they have given out. Now, Woodford's CF Woodford Equity Income Fund and in particular Woodford Patient Capital Trust will include unlisted investments. The new fund will not include any unlisted investments. Um, it's also going to have a wider geographic remit. We don't know exactly what this is yet but it will be able to invest more than 20% of its assets in um, overseas shares. Now CF Woodford Equity Income is a UK equity income sector fund and the rules of that sector state that you can't um, have more than 20% of your assets outside UK equity income or UK shares. This fund, if it's going to invest quite a lot abroad, it's unlikely that it will sit in the UK equity income setup. We don't know what it is yet, but it might be that it's a defined as a global equity income fund um, which brings in lots of new opportunities but possibly new risk as well because obviously there might might be some currency issues geographic political risk to deal with if it's going to look in um, other jurisdictions
0: okay how have these other funds been performing in, until now
2: well, see so Woodford equity income, it hasn't had a great 2016. That said, it's delivered a positive return, but um, it's quite light on oil and gas shares, which at times is good. But um, these did quite well last year. So it's lagged the FTSE All share. What I'd say about that is you don't invest in that kind of fund for one year. You invest for the long term. So um, I wouldn't, it's not, I don't think it's, you know, Woodford suddenly lost his, you know, talent. It's one year. He's quite defensively positioned. So, you know, look at what that fund does over the long term. And there may well be a time when having that kind of positioning is beneficial.
0: Okay, well, great. We're going to um, look at this in more detail in next week's issue. So keep your eyes out for that. And now, finally, another fund that's been making headlines, but for less positive reasons, is Global Investment Trust Alliance Trust. It's had a tumultuous few years due to activist investors forcing through a whole raft of changes to try and remedy poor performance. And a wide discount to NAV. But Leonora, there's been another major development regarding Alliance Trust this week, hasn't there? What, what is it and why is it significant?
2: Well, yes, you alluded to the fact that it's had um, quite a hellish few years, as it were, because of activist investors. Um, its board have now proposed an exit route for the uh, activist investor in question. That's Elliot Advisors. The board proposes buying back Elliot's entire stake. Now, that's nearly 20% of Alliance Trust issued share capital. I mean, it's significant in that it's a large chunk, but also because Elliot has done some I mean, it's basically kind of totally turned the, the investment trust inside out, almost, almost unrecognisable to what it was five years ago. It's a fair lot of change. If Elliot goes, I suppose it could held an era of kind of like calm and, uh, you know, stability. Not that, you know, what Elliot's done is necessarily bad. Alliance Trust was underperforming. It ran to wide discount to NAV. His board weren't active, his managers didn't seem to do much. Elliot's really, you know, it's really given it a kick in the butt, as it were. And, um, you know, the discount has come in massively. So you could say what it's done is good. Uh, what will the terms be of the departure? Yeah, well, it'll be a buyback via several tranches if investors approve it, because this is not set in stone. There's a general meeting on the 28th of February. Shareholders have to give their approval. If the buyback is approved, it'll be done in five tranches at a four seven, five percent discount to the trust's net asset value at the time, which is roughly what it's trading at now. Okay. And and if approved, what will the exit mean for the trust and shareholders? Well, it could be quite positive because um Alliance Trust board says that buying back the Elliott shares would lift the net asset value by about 1%. Um, and as I mentioned before, I suppose having this particular shareholder out of it might mean a period of stability, which would probably be good going forward because I think Alliance Trust is doing badly um, and Elliot has very rightly kind of moved it along a bit. But you know, things are, look like they're maybe set up better now, so it might be good to have a period where you know, the trust is allowed to pursue its sort of new route and, um, and see how that goes. Okay. And what's the Alliance
0: Trust proposed new structure?
2: Yeah, that's another major change announced recently. The Investment Trust is a, is a global trust and traditionally invested in equities and a few other things. It's now proposing a multi-manager structure. A multi-manager structure is where a fund doesn't go and buy shares. It selects a number of managers outs not normally outside, so it's outsourcing it, and each of these managers will select a portfolio. Now, um, our listeners might be familiar with Witten Investment Trust. Witten Investment Trust has that structure. It's got um, an asset allocation team in London, and they've got a, a number of fund managers who, who've got portfolios. Alliance Trust has recently appointed Towers Willits Watson, who are basically pension fund consultants to do the overall um, choosing an asset allocation and they've selected eight managers who would each run a portfolio of 20 stocks and one of these managers gqg would also run a 50 stock portfolio of emerging market shares so this is you know this proposed new structure it's all again subject to approval shareholder meeting 28th of february will decide what happens there OK, so what what do analysts think of, of that structure and, and also of this exit route? Analysts are really quite positive on it. I think it's fair to say, you know, Elliot's achieved a lot but um, it has created instability. And the fact that you've got you know, a big shareholder with a 20% stake, it's a bit clunky. Big trust, but still, you know, it's a large stake. I think also as well, they're constantly changing, changing, changing. Um, so it would be stability. Um, and also, they, uh, if it didn't go out now, they probably would want an exit at some point because they're an activist investor who likes to realise things. So it was kind of like something overhanging them. It would, If it wasn't done now, it would have to be done in future. So they, they do it now. It's quite a clean way. To deal of it they'll have a stable shareholder base and can potentially move forward with all these major changes that they want to enact
0: okay so just wait and see what happens at the vote then on 20th of february yeah okay well so for more on all of that uh, pick up the magazine this week and otherwise thank you to leonora and laura and have a great weekend planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince